Welcome everyone to part one of the Grace and Bias Forming Catholic Leaders Around Issues of Race webinar series. This series is a collaboration between SLI Connect, St. Luke Institute's education program, and the Catholic Apostolate Center, and it's made possible by a gift from the Active Foundation. Many thanks to the Catholic Apostolate Center and to John Sitko, my colleague, for hosting the webinar today. I'll just give a very brief introduction for our presenter, Dr. Crystal Taylor Dietz. Dr. Taylor Dietz is a licensed psychologist and the National Director of Behavioral Health Services for Devereaux Advanced Behavioral Health. From 2015 to October 2020, so until very recently, she worked with priests and religious in both an outpatient and residential treatment setting at St. Luke Institute. She received a doctorate in clinical psychology from Chestnut Hill College and completed her pre-doctoral internship at the Center for Multicultural Training and Psychology at Boston Medical Center, along with a postdoctoral fellowship at the George Washington University Professional Psychology Program. She is also currently on the faculty at the George Washington University and the Washington School of Psychiatry. We're ready to begin the presentation, which I will note here, uh, the presentation portion is actually pre-recorded. Dr. Taylor Dietz will join us live for the Q&A after the presentation which will be facilitated by John Sitko. John will remind you about this after uh, Dr. Taylor Dietz's pre presentation, but part two of our series will take place on Tuesday, January 12th, and you can register online by following us on social media or on either of our organization's websites. With that, we'll begin, and thanks everyone for joining us today. Hello everyone, welcome to our webinar today on implicit bias. I'll be giving you some tools for self-development. I am Dr. Crystal Taylor Dietz. I will be leading you through this webinar today. Um, I'm the National Director of Behavioral Health Services for Devereaux Advanced Behavioral Health. And prior to that, I was Director of Outpatient Services at St. Luke Institute. So I've been working with priests, clergy, religious, um, and those of you working in the ministry field for quite some time. And I'm excited to be talking to you about this topic today. So implicit bias is a topic that's kind of a hot topic in our social cultural climate at this time, but it's really an, an important topic for us to be talking about because we live in a world where the church is continuing to diversify. Um, here in the United States, especially, we have uh, ministers and pastors and seminarians coming from all over the world to come here for education and for ministry. And our churches are also becoming more and more diverse as we have people from all different walks of life and backgrounds and countries and nationalities in our parishes. So it's really important that we be aware of any kind of implicit bias and explicit bias that we might be holding about people who are different than us. Um, because we know that the more aware we are of those aspects, um, the easier it is and the more successful we'll be in intercultural engagement. One of the other things that we're going to be talking about and why this is an important topic is that it's really understand the way that implicit bias is formed and how our own personal identity and cultural experiences inform the biases that we might hold and how our understanding of that can make us more effective leaders um, in our work and our vocations. So some of the learning objectives that we'll cover today, the first is we're gonna look at the difference between implicit and explicit biases and how they manifest on individual levels and societal levels. 
We're also going to explore how personal identity and cultural experiences impact the development of our own implicit bias. And then we're going to increase our self-awareness. So we're going to get into details of the aspects of ourself and our development and our culture that we should be looking at to inform us and give us some more insight into the biases that we might hold and also get a better sense of how those things might impact the way that we interact with people, especially people that are different than ourselves. So let's dive in. So one of the things I think is really important to touch base about this topic from the beginning, and I think it's because people can be uncomfortable thinking about having biases or having prejudices. And I think it gets really in, um, important for people in helping professions because of course we go into this helping profession because we love people, we wanna help people, and no one wants to think that they hold prejudice. But the reality is that people with egalitarian values, even those working in helping professions, even those working in healthcare professions, often have a difficult time accepting that they do in fact harbor prejudice attitudes um, or that they, you know, they have a hard time imagining that they would do anything that could be harmful or negative towards another person. And so while it is true that it might be hard for us to admit that, it's an important part of being able to really address it is to be able to um, consciously say and admit to yourself that we all do. Um, it's human. We all have biases that live in us. It doesn't make us bad people. It makes us human people. And in fact, from a brain perspective, we are hardwired to hold both positive and negative biases about ourselves and other people. And our biases can be expressed in a number of different ways. They can be expressed more overtly through um, verbal language. They can be expressed more subtly through our affect, um, you know, the emotions that we might demonstrate on our face or our body language. And they can also be demonstrated through differential treatment. So treating people differently whom we have biases towards. And that could be negative or positive biases. One of the reasons that this is something that lives in all of us, implicit biases, is because it's natural for people to think in terms of in-group and out-groups. And we'll get into more conversation about what that means exactly. But that way of thinking is a natural way that humans and our brains work to kind of categorize things. Um, and it is true that even individuals who consider themselves moral well-intentioned and even those in helping professions that may have gotten some training around this still hold biases. It is an ongoing continuous process to recognize these things in ourselves. So let's talk a little bit more about in-group and out-group. Um, so in-group is this idea that any group or category to which an individual belongs to and feels a membership to, and that fosters a deep sense of loyalty and a sense of identity for the person, right? So as an African-American woman, some of my in-groups are women and other African-Americans. Those are groups that I feel a connection to. Those are groups that are an important part of my identity. An out-group would be any group or category that an individual does not belong to as a member or may even feel animosity towards or in competition with. So again, when we think about individuals from um, uh, minority background statuses, and I don't really like the word minority, but it's the easiest way to explain it in this kind of talk, um, the majority people that they come in contact with might not be people that they consider part of their, their in-group. They might be people that they consider part of an out-group. I think um, another way that we can think about this is 
um, sports teams, right? So um, often with sports teams, you have a very much a loyalty to one sports team and those are your people. You walk down the street and you see them and your jerseys is like an automatic, like, hey, yeah, I'm from Philadelphia, so go Eagles, right? But if you see someone with a different sports team logo on, it's like, mm, they're not one of us, right? So they're part of the out group, but those people that wear your same sports team logos are part of the in group, right? Well, where this gets interesting is that um, even for people who are in places of vocation or employment where they're meant to help people, they still automatically think in terms of in-group and out-group, even if their ideas consciously are that they want to help everyone. Okay, and so just to make this a little bit more plain of how common this is in all people, even people in helping professions, I'm going to get into a couple of different research studies that looked at particular groups of people. So the first is research studies that look at bias in healthcare professionals, and there are a lot of research studies that look at this. Um, and I've been privy to a lot of them over the years because I'm a psychologist, right? And so one of the things that came out that comes out in studies and in this study in particular that was looked at through a Georgetown University study uh, is that healthcare professionals were found to hold both explicit and implicit and we'll get into the details of what those are um, that impact their treatment and decision making. So it was found in these studies that they hold stereotypes based on things like race, class, sex and other characteristics. They also held stereotypes that influenced their interpretation of their patient's behaviors and their symptoms, and then that impacted their clinical decision-making. They also found that healthcare providers interact less effectively with minorities than with their white patients. And so this was overall for all the different healthcare professionals that were in this study. So what this tells us is that their implicit biases and explicit biases had a direct correlation on how they were diagnosing and treating their patients and their clinical decision-making. So that's huge, right? That could really impact someone in a potentially negative way if you hold negative biases towards someone that is of an outgroup to you that impacts your ability to really see the full picture of what's happening with them, with them health-wise, right? What else we find is that bias re results in um, or is present in people that are highly religious. Um, and so this is um, prime research for the group that we're here talking with today, right? And the sense that we would like to think, I think that as religious people, we would be more understanding, more empathic, less judgmental. But there was a study done at the University of North Carolina that showed, sorry, South Carolina, that actually showed um, looking at 55 different studies. So it was what we think of as a meta-analysis. I mean, they looked at a number of different studies. They looked at the data that was present in those studies, the way the research was done. And what they found was that there was over 20,000 Christians that took part in these 55 different studies. They were mostly white. And what they concluded, and this was a study done in America, what they concluded is that members of religious congregations tended to harbor more prejudice views of other races than those people in the study who were not religiously affiliated. The more devout the community, the greater the racism. They also found that researchers speculate that the racist tendencies were not only um, only with people of Christian background. So there were Christians that they researched in this particular study, but what they said was that their guess is that in their theory, based on other research, is that all religions offer a moral group identity, meaning that the religious group you're affiliated with becomes your in-group. 
right? So there's something that happens in, in judging people who were considered out group in, in a, another religious affiliation or not religiously affiliated. And that their theory is that all different people that are highly affiliated with a religious group are gonna have racist tendencies or prejudice tendencies towards others because they don't value the out group as much as they value their in group. Now, this doesn't mean that people who are highly religious are bad people, again, right? So we have to kind of shift the way that we think about what it means to hold prejudice, because a lot of times we look at things very black and white, but people are complex and this topic is complex, right? So inevitably, if you hold strong affiliation to a group, then you're gonna have a stronger sense of separation from another group, right? And so, and that's really what we're talking about here is that that's what we found, that the more devout people were to their Christian faith in this particular study, then the more biases they held about others who were non-white um, and who they saw as not having their same values or being part of the outgroup. So now let's get into talking a little more about explicit versus implicit bias since we've been kind of getting into it a little bit and talking about these research studies. So explicit bias is what we think of as conscious bias, right? So it's conscious feelings, attitudes, and stereotypes that we hold as individuals that are displayed through things like our speech and our behavior. Now, what I wanna highlight here is that this is different than someone who might hold prejudice beliefs or biased beliefs and doesn't say them because it's not publicly appropriate to say them. Um, this is about someone who consciously knows what they think and they feel, even if they don't express it to other people, okay? So it's really about your own internal understanding of yourself. Um, the individual is fully aware of his or her thoughts and they're intentional in their behavior if they do express their, their bias. In, in extreme forms, people who hold explicit biases can manifest them in exclusionary behavior, so excluding people, um, being outwardly prejudiced towards people, or through verbal and physical harassment, which unfortunately I'm sure we've seen some of um, on the news and media in, in recent ages. Now, implicit bias is the opposite of that. So this is unconscious bias. This is bias that is outside of the person's awareness. So this is something that consciously people think, no, I don't have any problem with people of another race or gender or sexual orientation. And again, people who do believe in equal rights, um, consciously they don't have thoughts that they're aware of that are biased, but unconsciously, they do hold thoughts that are biased. And this can be a direct contradiction, again, to the views that they, they speak about. And the reason why this is more dangerous is because when something is operating out of your conscience, then it can slip into situations that we're not aware of and it can cause harm and we not know that it's causing harm. Right, And so it can go unnoticed for a long while and continue to cause harm in ways that we're not aware of. And that's why implicit bias um, in many ways is, is more harmful um, and more concerning than explicit bias because we can't get a good hold on it if we don't know that it's there. So one of the ways that implicit bias can manifest is in um, individual interactions, either in overt or subtle ways, as well as it has a large impact on societal systems. When we think about societal systems, we're thinking about systems such as education, financial institutions, 
policing, um, in courtroom and judicial systems, in religious institutions, and in hospitals, right? So we think about the ways in which you might treat someone different in an education system if you hold bias about their disability or if you hold bias about their race. Or in a financial institution, we know there's been a lot of research about um, individuals of color or individuals um, of minority status not getting the same kinds of loans and opportunities that other individuals that have the same financial background might. Um, we've been hearing a lot around our nation about policing in um, judicial systems that are, seem to be biased in the way that they treat people. Um, again, we saw the research around highly religious people, and so we know that that likely trickles into institutions. And then we know, again, healthcare providers hold bias, and it impacts it the way that they treat their patients. So, again, Implicit bias is really dangerous because these are things that are happening outside of people's awareness unintentionally and yet still has a large impact on both individuals and society. So let's think a little bit more about what are the cognitive processes that lead to having bias. I said earlier, we're hardwired in this way, right? And what we mean by that is our brain actually goes through these processes that allow bias to form. So there are two brain processes that happen, one that's related to explicit bias and one that's related to implicit bias. So the one that's related to explicit bias is what we think of as the reflective system. And just like you think about the process of reflection for yourself, it's something that takes a lot of motivation, it's something that takes effort, and that same thing happens in our brain. So when we get into situations that take um, complex processing, this part of our brain takes a lot of effort and, and motivation for us to use. And it also um, takes a good amount of time for us to process in the reflexive system of our brain. Then, so that's where explicit bias lies, right? Because it's something that we're conscious of, we can take time to think about it. But there's another part of our brain that uses what we think of as a reflexive process. And this is where implicit bias um, kind of lives and manifests. And this is a kind of processing that is quick. Um, it's automatic, so it takes little effort. We, we don't think about it. Our brain just acts in this way without us even consciously having to think about it. And this kind of process kicks in when we feel a need to protect ourselves. And when we think about protecting ourselves, I want to think about it in both an emotional way and a physical way, right? So there might be times that someone feels physically threatened and this kind of reflexive process would kick into play. And again, it's reflexive because it's automatic. But there are also times that we might feel emotionally threatened or we might feel um, emotionally defensive in a situation or we feel like, you know, our sense of self or our competence might be threatened or we feel uncomfortable because maybe we feel uncertain of how to respond. Those are kinds of situations where the reflexive part of our processing and our brain might kick in. And so what happens is the brain goes into this with an implicit bias, goes into this very quick processing to assist us with being able to understand and problem solve in complex situations. So the brain says, oh, this is a situation where we need to get through this quickly. Or the brain says, I'm feeling threatened, so let me figure out how to protect myself. And it goes into a process of using stereotypes and categorization so that we can process more quickly. Right? Because if we took the details of the situation, it would take more time. It would take concerted effort to be able to look through all of the details. But when our body goes into this kind of reflexive process, it's trying to get it done as quickly as it can. 
So one of the ways of doing that is starting to categorize people. Oh, I know this person seems like they fit this category of person. Then with that comes the stereotypes that we hold about that category of people. Those stereotypes are largely unconscious and tend to result from memories of early experiences we've had. So early socialization experiences or early cultural ways of conditioning us to think about certain groups of people life experiences that we might have had with different kinds of people, whether those be direct experiences or indirect, as well as the social context that we live in, right? So what's happening in the society around us, around us can also inform these kind of unconscious thoughts we have about people who are different than us. Again, the process of stereotyping increases more when we're acting with interacting with someone that's of our out group to us, even though we can still stereotype in the in group as well. You can do it, but it happens to be that we tend to use stereotypes more when it comes to people of out groups. And then the process becomes even stronger when we're under stress or we're under fear. Um, again, so this is the process that leads to us enacting and really um, projecting our biases onto other people. And so if you think about this as being a cognitive process, then you can recognize where it's really important to take away the judgment that a lot of us hold about the fact that we have implicit bias because our brain sets us up in a way to have it as a way of trying to help us get through situations, right? So it's a process our brain has developed to be helpful, but it can be harmful um, in, in cases like this. So this is just a, a big graph, a little graph that I think is helpful. And again, it came from the Georgetown um, University uh, module that they did on bias. And it kind of looks at what the flow is. So again, you go into this reflexive process and you start to have some cognitive categorizations happen. You put people in categories. And then with that comes stereotypes. And then once you start stereotyping, there are thoughts and feelings that come with those stereotypes. And so that's what then leads to the bias, right? Whether those be a conscious bias or unconscious bias. And then that then can get um, moved into a place of behavior where we start behaving towards the person in either overt ways or inadvertent behavior that enacts our biases. And, and that's really where the, the problem arises, right? When we start to enact our biases towards other people in ways that we're either aware of or we're, we're not aware of. So now that we've gotten some background on what it is that's happening in our brain, let's look at some tools for actually starting to decrease biases. And when we look at the idea of decreasing bias in ourselves, there's a lot of research that looks at different elements, but they all kind of dwindled down to six to eight that you see come up in research repeatedly. And um, the AAFP, which is the American Association of Family Physicians, um, actually lists eight that they use and it actually follows the word implicit. So it's easy for us to remember if we wanted to use these kind of step guidelines to help us in reducing our own personal bias is to look at the word implicit and then these steps follow that. So the first is to really start to be introspective and that's where we're going to spend a lot of our time today is talking about how you yourself can start to be more curious and exploration, explorational and uh, about your own identity and how your own identity and cultural experiences have led to your own prejudices and biases and, and help you get to a place where you can be more curious about the bias that you hold. 
Um, and we know that through self-analysis, you can uncover the unconscious. It takes a lot of concerted effort to do it. Um, one of the other ways that you could use is to take an implicit, implicit association test. And the IA test, IAT test, is one of the most researched implicit bias tests out there. Um, it was developed at Harvard. And so if you were interested in that or your organization's interested in that, that's one that's most that's highly researched. Um, another thing that you can do for yourself is to be more mindful. So if we know that our brain starts to go into the process of utilizing um, stereotypes and bias when we're stressed, um, then it's important for us to be able to recognize when we're feeling stressed, when our emotions are becoming uncomfortable, so that we can stay in the present moment as much as we can and not get into this reflexive part of our brain. The other thing that we can do is perspective taking. Um, this is something we talk about a lot in therapy with our clients, right? So not only are we helping clients explore, we're also helping clients be able to take on a different perspective, to step outside of your own experience and put yourself in someone else else's experience and think about what they might be going through. And this can help you recognize where you might be holding some judgments or holding some inaccuracies, um, as well as perspective taking can be um, helped by spending time with people that are different than you. And then learning to slow down. So um, I say that because when our brain is moving quickly and when we're trying to get through situations quickly, it's more likely we're gonna use that part of our brain, brain that's reflexive, right? But if we can slow down, help ourselves be more in the moment, then we're more likely to be able to process the details of what's happening and not categorize people, right? So this says to be able to reflect and consider positive examples of people from the categories that you're thinking of or recognizing that you're putting them in a category and trying to attend to them as an individual person instead. The next step, the fifth step in this is to individu is individuation, which means to evaluate based again on the person's individual characteristics instead of putting them in a category. And then the next is to check your messages. And I think this is really important. You know, you've probably heard a lot um, in media about not saying that you're colorblind or that you don't see color. Um, and what we know is that what we've just learned about how the brain works is that's just not possible that as a human, it's not possible for us to judge all people in the same way and to have the same thoughts about all different kinds of people. It's natural for us to categorize. It's natural for us to stereotype. So if we know that, then saying blanket statements like that really diminishes the importance of diversity and recognizing individual characteristics. And so we wanna to start to check what kinds of messages we're saying and how that can actually be um, disheartening or harmful or invalidating to another person's experience. And then institutional fairness. So really looking at the, the culture of the institutions you work in and looking to see are there times where you might be furthering stereotypes in a way that's not helpful. Um, there's something called equity lens tools that you can utilize as an organization as well to help with that. And then the last is to take two, meaning to take a step back and to recognize that you're gonna have to relearn these things. It's a lifelong work. You're gonna have to constantly restart the process of, of um, recognizing what kinds of biases you hold. We're ever evolving as a people, right? So it's, it's important we're always checking in with ourselves. So let's go back to the first part of this, which is 
how increasing our own introspection can help. And what we know is that once we increase our own introspection about our own biases and prejudices, we're required to really be more self-aware of our own identity, right? We have to be able to understand who we are and what makes us who we are in order to really start to be more curious about what kinds of bias we might hold that we can be unaware of. So we're gonna start by thinking about identity. Who am I? And this really kind of encompasses the qualities, the personalities, the beliefs and expressions that make you as a person um, or make up a group of people. And so part of this is to think of culture, right? I mean, when we're really talking about in groups and out groups, what we're really talking about is what is it about a particular group of people that makes them who they are, right? So it's the traditions of thought or behavior that are socially acquired and are passed down through certain groups of people like Catholicism is a culture, a very diverse culture, but it's a culture, right? And we can also think of culture as the collective programming of the mind that distinguishes the members of one group from another. And I really like this definition when we're thinking about bias and in-groups and out-groups because it paints the picture that when we belong to one particular group, there are these unconscious ways that we're programmed to think about how our group is different than other groups. And for some groups, there's a programming to think about how your group might be better than another group. So when we're thinking about cultural identity and how this can impact our self-awareness of our own biases, we're really thinking about the extent to which you as an individual consider your, your personal significance to these different groups and the amount of solidarity and loyalty you hold to these different groups. Um, and so your different in-groups are gonna be multifaceted, right? There's different, there's lots of different groups that make up who we are as people. So they are, there's intersections. It's not as if you only belong to one group, which means that this process of self-awareness and coming to better understand ourselves is, is quite complicated, right? We should also point out that there are times that someone is born into a, gi a given cultural group that they don't actually feel a part of or that they don't actually feel accepted in. And that can lead to marginalization, right? So again, if we think about America, there are a lot of ethnic minority groups who are born in America, but might not always feel like they are treated like full Americans based on their rights or not having equal rights. And so they then feel marginalized, right? So as you're thinking about your own identity, you wanna think about are there ways in which you may, may feel marginalized um, in some of the groups that are your in-group, but that you don't really feel um, the norms and beliefs of that group speak to who you are. So we're going to look at some different cultural identities specifically, just to give you a sense of what we mean by cultural identity. So we're going to go through a couple of examples. I've listed some here that are kind of typical when people think about identity development. But I also wanted to highlight some of the social cultural identities that came up in the research around healthcare professionals and their bias. So these were areas of others' identity that brought up bias for them. So that was age, disability, education, English language proficiency, which we're going to talk about, ethnicity, which we'll talk about, health status, um, meaning the kind of diagnosis that they had or where they were in, in the course of their, their health, obesity, race, socioeconomic status, which I also think is something that comes up a lot in the church, kind of looking at the ways in which the church, whether that be congregations or the larger church, um, 
speaks to and treats individuals of different socioeconomic backgrounds. So we're talking about class systems. Um, skin tone, which we'll talk about. Some people think of skin tone as colorism. We'll talk a little bit about colorism and then substance use. So I wanted to highlight these here because I think that these areas of identity are also areas that we come in contact with as people who work in ministry, right? And so we're coming in contact with people who have lots of different parts of themselves that they bring to us to need help with or to need support with. And so I think as, as professionals in this field, it's also important to look at these and think to yourself, are there aspects of other people's identities that fall in this category that you find yourself feeling uncomfortable with that you find yourself holding some maybe explicit bias about and to be curious about that and, and to think more about that for yourself. So ethnic and racial identity and I, this is obviously a hot topic when we're thinking about implicit bias because a lot of the social cultural conversation around implicit bias stems from conversations about racism and how to recognize racial bias that people hold. So rate, ethnic and racial identity development is something that everyone goes through. I know sometimes people like to think of the word ethnic as only being related to ethnic minorities, but white people go through a process of identity development as well. And so it is the process by which an individual develops a sense of personal investment and attachment to one's own ethnic group. So this can be ethnic groups and racial groups. Sometimes we use them um, interchangeably, but they can be very different for people depending on their background. Individual beliefs and attitudes about their group membership, as well as the process by which these develop over time. So again, all of these aspects of identity development are something that is evolving through the lifespan different situations that you're in, different relationships you're in, will cause changes in these different aspects of your identity, which is again why this idea of being aware of our bias is a lifelong process because we're always evolving. And so if we're always evolving, it's important to note that our thoughts and feelings are always evolving as well about other people. Um, so research shows that individuals from ethnic minority groups place more emphasis on their ethnic identity than those from the majority ethnic groups. Now, if you think about this, this probably makes sense because if you are of an ethnic minority, you're faced with the reality that you are not the majority all of the time, right? So it forces you to think more about this aspect of your identity than someone who might feel they relate to or they are part of the majority identity in whatever culture they're living in, right? So um, as a black woman, I've known from the time I could look at my skin tone to recognize that I was different than most people in my class. I grew up in a predominantly white area, right? So this idea of my identity as being black was very present for me. Whereas for someone who most people they see in a day look like them, that might not be something that's always on their mind. Other thing to keep in mind regarding ethnic and racial identity is the linguistic differences that are related to ethnicity and race. And these are both linguistic differences when we think about someone having um, or being fluent or having a different native language than we might have ourselves or speaking a number of different languages because they've grown up in such um, a, a linguistically diverse environment. But it also means to think about the ways in which different racial groups or different regions of the world or different regions of the United States might all speak the same language, but have variations in the words that they use, the vernaculars that they use, um, the slang that they use, the informal versions of whatever language they're speaking, you know, exist in all cultures, right? So thinking about how those can also be related to racial and ethnic groups. 
and thinking about the kind of bias that you might hold when you hear people using um, words or slang or accents that feel different than yours. So talking about ethnic and identity development and other aspects of identity development, we also want to think about additional cultural experiences that can impact bias and that we know can be significant areas where people hold bias. And so we're going to go through each of these that's listed here kind of individually and talk a little bit more about them and how they can relate to us um, holding some of the biases that we have. So I mentioned in the study about healthcare professionals that one of the things they found is that healthcare professionals held some bias about different skin tones. And so colorism can be thought of as within groups or within the same group or between groups of prejudice in favor of a lighter skin color. And this was a, a term that colorism was a term coined by feminist author Alice Walker. And it's something that happens through a global perspective. So colorism is something that has been documented in research about individuals from the country of India and individuals in Brazil. Um, and it certainly happens here in the US, both within the black community and within the Hispanic and Latino community, as well as between communities that research has shown again and again from the time um, kids are little to adults that adults tend to favor little kids who have a lighter skin tone um, to adults when it comes to what people consider to be um, attractive. Um, you know, uh, lighter skin tones tend to fall into that category. So there is a skin color bias that can affect people's perceptions and behaviors in subtle ways, but also in profound ways, if you think about what this means for um, attachment to people or how people are treated in society or how people um, determine how they feel they're attractive or not to other people. So this can have a large impact and research shows it has a large impact on society. The next area is thinking about privilege. And when we think about privilege, we also have to think about oppression, which we'll talk about next. But privilege is the right or immunity that gives the individual a distinct advantage of favor. And so many of you have probably heard, again, in our social cultural climate now, the idea of white privilege, right? And I think many people, again, have issue with that term because they might think that for themselves as an individuals, maybe they have suffered a lot of oppressive experiences in their in their personal lives. But we want to think about this as being a privilege of a group, not just a privilege of an individual, but also a privilege of a group, right? If we're thinking about in-group and out-group, there are certain groups in different cultural settings and in different countries that have more privilege than others. So as you're thinking about your own identity, you want to think about what aspects of your identity um, is held in a privileged position. So maybe it's not your race, but maybe it's education, or maybe it's the fact that you're in a vocation that allows you a lot of access to, to opportunities you might not have typically had. Maybe it's your income level, right? So for instance, I'm a black woman. And so while my status as an African American or black might not put me in a position of privilege in terms of my race, my education level, having a doctorate, um, does put me in a position of privilege when it comes to education. And that education has afforded me opportunities that the average person wouldn't have. Okay, So that's kind of how we can think about privilege and how it works in our own life, and then start to think about bias that we might carry about people who don't hold that same um, area of privilege. 
Then we think about oppression. So this is the state of being burdened spiritually or mentally, suppressed or crushed by an abuse of power. So again, I think it's important to evaluate both your own personal experiences of oppression, as well as to look at the larger societal experience of oppression of certain groups and to think about what that means for you and your identity. Um, and to recognize that um, even if your in-group is not oppressed, you could have had your own personal oppressive experiences and those are important to your identity and it can work vice versa as well. Immigration, I think, is also an important one because I think people hold a lot of stereotypes about immigration. People hold a lot of stereotypes about what someone's immigration experience might have been like or why someone would immigrate here or what it means right here or what it means for someone to immigrate here. And so um, thinking about um, immigration as a societal um, and cultural phenomenon and how that might result to some feelings of bias for yourself, but also to think about what has been your own experience of immigration um, and how that has informed how you think about it and your worldview around it. And I think with immigration, we think about acculturation and assimilation. So acculturation being the transfer of values of customs from one group to another. So if someone comes to a new country or a new culture, there should be, and what's healthy is a cultural exchange where the person is learning about the new culture, but they're also able to retain aspects of their main culture that are imperative to their identity, and they can share those with other peoples in their culture. What tends to happen, I think, is that people want people who migrate or immigrate to a new culture um, or are new to maybe it's a new parish or a new community to assimilate. They want them to absorb all of the majority culture in which the, the new person is coming into and essentially kind of disavow or put aside aspects of their culture um, that they're bringing with them. And what we know is that's not healthy because it leads to a, an extreme loss of identity for the person who doesn't uphold and keep aspects of their identity that are important to them. So again, for yourself to think about what are your personal experience and thoughts about the idea of acculturation for new people coming into a community or a culture or a country and how might that relate to some bias that you might hold? Okay, so we covered a lot of concepts today, but I think I want to come back and summarize it for us so we can stay focused on what can be helpful for us as we're working through implicit bias. So what we have learned today is that all humans hold bias, which is due to a combination of our cognitive processes, as well as the beliefs, attitudes, and experiences that we've had through our own cultural learning and our own interactions. And good intentions are great, but it doesn't make us immune to bias. We can have the best intentions. We can have the most egalitarian and humanitarian um, ideas, and it still doesn't mean that there are not areas that we hold bias and that there are not areas we hold implicit bias that we are unaware of that could be harmful. Um, it's also important to remember that explicit bias and implicit bias have different processes of how they work in the brain. Um, and so knowing that can help us enact skills and strategies to try to keep us in the part of the brain that can really process things in a more intentional and, and effortful way. Um, 
again, the mind's tendency to use a more reflective and automatic process is what puts us in a position of enacting our stereotypes and projecting them onto people in a way that's not helpful. What we know is that we can unlearn implicit bias. So there's a lot of research that shows that there's a number of things that we can do. We went through them. Um, you can look back at the slide that looks at implicit and we can look through those. But a big part of that starts with not judging yourself. Judging yourself for having bias or having prejudice is not helpful to growth. It, it stagnates us and puts it in, at us in a place of loathing. What we want to be at is in a place of exploration and in a place of openness for growth. So the first step in unlearning implicit bias is to admit that you hold it and to admit that you have to increase your own self-awareness about your own identity first before you can start to work on um, minimizing the implicit bias that you hold. And it requires getting in touch with those intersecting aspects of your own identity and your own culture and really being curious about it. Um, Therapy is a great place to be curious about yourself. Um, work groups within your organization is a great place to be curious about yourself. Your own reflective time on a regular basis, even a daily basis, is a great time to be curious about yourself, your thoughts and your feelings that you experience during the day, maybe particularly when you've been interacting with people that are different than yourself. And then the next thing to remember is that stress increases the chances of us perceiving others in situations from a place of stereotypes and bias. So the more that we can work on reducing our stress and in interactions, the more we can work on being mindful. That means a moment to moment awareness of what we're thinking and feeling. Then the more that we can move away from those automatic reflexive processes and move more into a reflective process. So that means you can practice mindfulness, you can practice slowing down your breathing if you're in situations where you recognize yourself getting a, a little riled up and try as much as you can to just focus in and not go to a point of trying to categorize and, and just recognizing when you do it and not judging it. Not judging it, I just can't, I can't stress enough. It's really an important part of this process. So, um, I hope that you have enjoyed this tidbit today on implicit bias. Um, so much more that we could talk about, but I enjoyed being here with you. If nothing else, I want you to leave with this thought that making the unconscious conscious is a continuous journey, and it requires constant, honest self-reflection and growth and self-assessment. So thank you all, and I hope that you guys have a great rest of your day. Hello all, my name is John Sitko. I am the Assistant Director of Programs for the Catholic Apostolate Center. Um, and we are going to do a bit of Q&A with our presenter, Dr. Car or Crystal Taylor Dietz. Um, Dr. Taylor Dietz, if you would, hey, there you go. And if you could just unmute your mic, we're gonna do about 15 to 20 minutes of question and answer with people. I, I thank you first of all for uh, doing this great presentation to begin with. Um, and I think hopefully everyone here learned a lot. But the first question that a lot of people seem to be asking is related to what do I do as a church leader with all of this information about explicit and implicit bias, especially in talking with colleagues, friends, et cetera. Um, since a lot of the people we have on here are, you know, uh, parish church leaders, CREs, pastors, et cetera. Yeah. So, you know, I think the reason why we felt it was important to focus on the self part first is because that's where it has to begin, you know? So as a leader for any organization, 
Um, first, you have to start with really digging into your own stuff. And I know that many of us maybe have done that before, keeping in mind that it's ever evolving and that we're in a particular climate right now. You know, it's a right time to continue to do that for yourself. And then I think the next beast is helping your staff do it, right? So finding time in your organization to do this kind of, have these kind of conversations and have time for this kind of reflection, right? Giving space for people to reflect, they don't have to share, but to ask these kinds of questions, you know, the reflective questions that I gave you guys to reflect on in advance, bringing that kind of discussion into your work with your colleagues, into your work with your staff, um, into the work with parents, you know, if you're working in a school, you know, just providing the space to allow other people to start be to be reflective on their own experience, I think is a starting point. Uh, another really popular question is this question of how do I recognize implicit bias? Um, you've given some examples, but how do we in the, you know, sort of the heat of a moment, either casually or inadvertently have like recognized when we, yeah. we've, you know, you acted can't on recognize it in the heat of the moment. <laughs> that's why it's implicit, right? Um, and, and that's why it's also, um, so difficult to get a handle on and why it also has the potential to be so dangerous because you, you can't notice it in the moment, which is why it has to be in these self-reflective internal work outside of the moment, right? Um, it's just in the way we talk about therapy, right? When you come to therapy, um, you're helping people become aware of what's on the unconscious by having them think about things in a way they haven't had the space to do it in a safe space to do it where they're not feeling judged um, and in a way that allows them to reflect on things so that eventually in the moment they can have these like aha experiences, right? So you're not gonna be able to do it initially in the moment, that's why it's implicit, that's why it's unconscious. So it really requires you to start doing the self-reflection, to be curious, to really dig into what are the aspects of yourself and your experiences that might be creating bias that you can start to be curious about so that way when it does come up and you've already been thinking about it, it's like, oh, that's, that's, there's something there for me to look at, right? Um, but it has to start with that self-reflective piece first. Um, a question that a lot of people seem to be having is this question of like, what are some examples to watch out for when it comes to implicit biases? Um, I think given the conversation about race right now, I think that's probably the, the one most people are thinking of is like, yeah. how do those implicit bias examples yeah. kind of come out? Well, I think it's interesting because I think we talk a lot of times about the negative implicit biases, right? But we have positive implicit biases too. And so I think maybe those might be easier to recognize. What I mean by that is, right, um, we hold stereotypes sometimes about um, people's level of competence based on their gender or based on their race, right? Um, and so if you notice yourself assuming that someone must be super competent because they have a particular de degree or they are of a particular background, that's some indication for you like, why, why am I assuming that, right? Um, and so being curious about the assumptions that we might be making even when they're positive and being curious about what is it in my experiences that have led me to that assumption. Um, another question is about the idea of facial recognition or facial understanding, I guess, in the moment, those kind of facial cues of saying something that might be wrong, because there's a, there's a, you know, a big understanding of, you know, especially as people who are Catholic leaders, we don't necessarily want to, you know, dissuade people from the Catholic Church as representatives of that entity. So how do we, um, I guess the best way is how do we recognize in the moment that these sorts of things have offended someone 
Right. Or is there a way to do that at all? Yeah, I think in general, teaching yourself how to be curious and how to point out observations might be helpful to that, right? So those of us who work in counseling have probably developed some of those skills where you can say to someone like, I noticed that you shifted a little bit in your seat. Can you tell me what's what's going on? Or I noticed that there was a facial change. Can you tell me what you're thinking or feeling? Or, you know, you seem a bit tense. Did something I say make you uncomfortable, right? So um, those kinds of questions being um, more tuned in to people's affect, what's happening on their face, what's happening in their body, and just getting to a point that you become curious about those in your conversations, I think, can be helpful. Did that answer the question? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I think that that is a very helpful, you know, practical gift because it's just something that, you know, quite honestly, a lot of us are not trained in thinking of. Right. Um, right. And, you know, we everyone obviously wants to try to do their best when talking about their explicit and implicit biases. Um, how does uh, you've talked a lot about culture, particularly like socioeconomic, but how does like regional biases sort of in the United States play into our role of implicit and explicit biases? I think it plays a huge role. You know, culture is not just about. Um, our own personal aspects of our identity. It's also about the environments we grew up in and what kinds of information, ideas, and assumptions are specific to our environment. Um, I'm going to give you an example that's like kind of mundane, right? But um, I grew up in Kansas City, which is known for barbecue, right? And so from my standpoint, Kansas City has the best barbecue, right? But if you go to Tennessee, they have a completely different way of doing their barbecue sauce and they think that their barbecue sauce is the best, right? And so we grow up with these regional ideas of things like that that are also related to people and are also related to things like sexuality or also related to things like the kind of speech we, we think is um, proper speech versus slang speech or quote ghetto speech. Like those kinds of things are, are part of the environment we grow up in are very regional. Um, so I think those kinds of things are the things we want to be curious about and begin to recognize that those are regional ideas we hold. Why do we have them and how do we project them onto other people in a way that might not be helpful? Uh, another question is uh, just about the sort of impl implicit bias training that you talked about a bit before, implicit association training. What are some, some recommendations if you want to implement this in like your parish or your diocese or even mm -hmm. just like your prayer group, for instance? What are some recommendations on, you know, next steps or even just how to broach this conversation with someone? Yeah. So, I mean, I think first... Um, talk with your staff, you know, like, um, I think start with saying, Hey, I did this, I uh, went to this webinar, it really interested me, I'd really want to know how you all would feel about getting more information about your own biases. And, and first saying, seeing if there's buy in for that, right? And if there isn't, you might need to spend more time working on the buy-in. Um, if there's buy-in, then I think the second step is to do some research on the different implicit association tests that are out there. Obviously, I mentioned the one done by Harvard because it's one of the most researched, but there are others out there. What you want to be looking at is what kinds of populations were they normed on? Are there some that have populations that are similar to the ones that you would be using or the ones that are in your parish or that you work with so that you can have a sense of how it might work with your group? One question we just got is, uh, could you speak more about separating out moral quality of our character with recognizing our own bias or privilege? Uh, I see this shutting down the invitation to reflect on these within ourselves, and I'm curious on how to invite myself and others into this without causing shame. 
Yeah. So I like to start with this idea that people are not good or bad, right? People are not that black and white. Our behavior is not that black and white. Um, and I think that if we can bring in the brain part of implicit bias, it helps people understand that, right? Like that there is a brain function that allows us to do this. It allows us to make assumptions. It allows us to make stereotypes. It is a human function. It does not mean that we are inherently bad. Now it can be utilized and projected in a way that can be harmful, right? But I think when we can separate our, our behaviors from who we are as people, that's a large part of it. And I think that's also a large part of separating guilt from shame, right? We can have guilt that we might be doing things that we're unaware of, but to hold shame means that we think we're a bad person because of that. And I think once we can start to talk about the idea that we're not bad people, because we make harmful assumptions or because we have harmful biases and really talking about that in a way that allows grace can help people start to look underneath a bit more and feel a little less shameful. We have a, like just a couple more minutes. Um, and so I wanted to ask, uh, you talked specifically at the end of the presentation, the quarter presentation about the importance of self-reflection. Uh -huh. Besides the questions that you posed to the group in the uh, beginning, what are some other questions that someone themselves should consider when they're reflecting on their own biases after as a takeaway from this presentation. Yeah. You know, I think a big one is has someone of a minority background ever accused you of being insensitive or making assumptions or having bias? And I say that because I think a lot of times our first part we go to when someone says it is, oh no, that's not true. I'm a good person. I love all people kind of things, right? I think especially as, as Christians, right? That's where we go. Like, no, no, I didn't do that. But if you can take a second and be curious about what might I have missed that could have led that person to come to that assumption, right? Start there. And I think that that's a good spot to be curious about and in the future to be curious about when someone accuses you of being biased or being judgmental or treating them differently because of their areas of difference, instead of going to an immediate place of wanting to dismiss it, to try to go to a place of curiosity. I think that's a very good point to end on. And we're right at two o'clock. So I, I want to be cognizant of everyone's time. But sure. I did want to say thank you, Dr. Taylor Dietz, for your presentation and for your taking some time to do Q&A with us. Um, for those who are watching this webinar, um, I would like to say thank you for everyone who tuned in. This is the first of three webinars with SLI Connect with a Generous Gift by the ACTA Foundation. Our next webinar will be on January 12th at one o'clock. If you could go to either SLI Connect or catholicapostlecenter.org, you'll be able to register for the webinars there. All three are free, and these will hopefully be available shortly after uh, this presentation has finished. Um, I would like to say thank you doc again to Dr. Taylor Dietz. Thank, thank you, you. Beth, Beth Davis as well from St. Luke's Institute for helping collaborate and co-host this webinar. And with that, I'd like to wish you all a very happy and helpful day. Thank you. Have a nice day. Bye.